This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Hi, Simone. Can you hear me? Yeah. Who is this? This is Guy Raz. I'm the host of the program. Oh, this guy. Okay. I thought it was the guy in the control room because I can hear him too. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I just just watched my TED Talk because I was like, wait, what did I say now again? This is Simone Yach. And my last name is spelled G-I-E-R-T-Z, so the pronunciation makes no sense whatsoever. (laughs) I think in any language. I've just concluded that my ancestors were trolls. And uh, and uh, what do you do? Um, I run a YouTube channel, or I'm an inventor of useless machines. All right, so a little explanation. Simone builds these useless machines in order to teach herself about engineering and robotics. I mean, generally, a useless machine comes from a problem. So I find a problem that I want to solve, and then I just go with the most kind of ridiculous way of doing it. Now, the problems Simone works on They're actually pretty simple tasks, like pouring a bowl of cereal or chopping vegetables. And Simone's useless machines, they usually don't work all that well. Yes. They're useless at solving the problem that they're attempting to solve. But they're useful in the way that they can make people laugh. Which sounds really cheesy, but... (laughs) Here's Simone Yach on the TED stage. As an inventor, I'm interested in things that people struggle with. It can be small things or big things or medium-sized things. And identifying a problem is the first step in my process of building a useless machine. For example, brushing your teeth. Like, it's this thing we all have to do. It's kind of boring, and nobody really likes it. So what about if you had a machine that could do it for you? Why don't you describe this thing that you showed to the audience? This was the first kind of useless machine that I made. It was a helmet that had a robot arm on it, just right on the top of it, like a unicorn horn. Um, And at the end of it, it had a toothbrush. I call it the toothbrush helmet. And the robot arm kind of lowers the toothbrush in front of my mouth and brushes my teeth. My toothbrush helmet is recommended by zero out of 10 dentists, and it definitely did not revolutionize the world of dentistry, but it did completely change my life. Because I finished making this toothbrush helmet three years ago, and after I finished making it, I went into my living room, and I put up a camera, and I filmed a seven-second clip of it working. Since then, I've carved out this little niche for myself on the internet as an inventor of useless machines. Because as we all know, the easiest way to be at the top of your field is to choose a very small field. You spend many hours, days of your life, making these useless robots. Do I hear judgment? In no, no, no judgment. I just... <laughs> It's just amazing. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, I do have to, like, have that conversation with myself of, like, can I really spend 14 hours on doing this? Is this really, does this make sense? I'm yeah. almost 30. What am I doing? <laughs> uh, but, no, it, it is it is joyful because I'm like, well, I'm creating something. My motto has kind of become, if I find it interesting, then there are probably other people who will find it interesting, too. There's so much focus today on achievement and success that it's easy to lose sight of a simple emotion, joy. And joy isn't just this nice, pleasant feeling. It can actually lay the groundwork for a richer life and a deep connection with the world around us. So on our show today, we're going to talk about finding joy in some places you might expect and in some places you might not. And if you watch Simone's videos on YouTube, it's not very hard to see why more than a million people subscribe to her channel. Because Simone just shares her joy creating these machines. Machines that have no real purpose. Can you just kind of describe a couple of other things that you've invented? 
I think the machine that most people have seen that I've made is the wake up machine. And it's this alarm clock that has a big plastic hand on it and that slaps me to wake me up. I've made a plethora of other useless machines. More recently, I made a machine that serves me soup, and it kind of just throws a bowl of soup at me. Hey, Google, turn on the soup robot. You got it. Turning the soup robot on. Um, I've also just, I mean, I'm, I'm doing a lot of different things. <laughs> what if you could have things orbit around your head, like a personal delivery system? The hammering robot is definitely more destructive than constructive. I think we need a little bit of iteration, but we're getting there. I think it'll work. This would be so much easier if I just knew what I was doing. Looking back, it's pretty obvious that I didn't have a game plan. I was just like skipping from one stone to another and being like, I'm going to try this and I'm going to try this. I mean, engineering is so much about what the relationship you have to the tools you use. It's almost like a love relationship where you have to make sure that you use them for fun things as well to kind of keep yourself excited about it and to keep yourself engaged. At least that's what, how it's been for me. I'm not an engineer. I did not study engineering in school, but I was a super ambitious student growing up. In middle school and high school, I had straight A's and I graduated at the top of my year. On the flip side of that, I struggled with very severe performance anxiety. Here's an email I sent to my brother around that time. You won't understand how difficult it is for me to confess this. I'm so freaking embarrassed. I don't want people to think that I'm stupid. And no, I did not accidentally burn our parents' house down. The thing I'm so upset about is that I got a B on a math test. So something obviously happened between here and here. I got interested in building robots, and I wanted to teach myself about hardware. But building things with hardware, especially if you're teaching yourself, is something that's really difficult to do. It has a high likelihood of failure, and moreover, it has a high likelihood of making you feel stupid. So I came up with a setup that would guarantee success 100% of the time. And that was that instead of trying to succeed, I was going to try to build things that would fail. And even though I didn't realize it at the time, building stupid things was actually quite smart. Because As I kept on learning about hardware, for the first time in my life, I did not have to deal with my performance anxiety. And as soon as I removed all pressure and expectations from myself, that pressure quickly got replaced by enthusiasm, and it allowed me to just play. I mean, it, it strikes me that, on the one hand, you could, you could describe this as, oh, there's Simone, she's making useless robots, right? But on the other hand, like, this is something that brings joy to a lot of people. Like, people love watching this because it's really funny. Is there part of this idea that you just want people to laugh? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, at least for me, that's always been how I justify taking up any space in the world. It's with, with a punchline. But to me, it became this, like, engineering is really intimidating. And trying to set out to learn about engineering, especially if you're teaching yourself like I did, it's just such a daunting process and made me not want to go in and learn about it because I was really scared to be questioned. So building useless machines for me started as, like, kind of a cathartic, just, like, I want to learn about engineering, but I don't dare to actually try to make it in a serious way. So I'm just going to build things that fail. Yeah, you know, I mean, like most of us were sort of trained to believe that a life of purpose and meaning requires goals, like building a career or creating communities, like something very concrete. And that's what gives us meaning. But it strikes me that that's actually incomplete, that there are things, there are pursuits without a goal, like just purely because they're fun or joyful that are just as meaningful. You know what I mean? I also feel like creating things doesn't have to be much more than that. And there's definitely a lot of joy to be found. It's just that there's so much else getting in the way. And we live in a time of distraction. I've just started thinking about my phone. If my phone would be a person, then it would be the biggest jerk of all time. Because whenever you're like with family or you're trying to relax or something, it would just be that friend who comes and like taps you on the shoulder and it's like, hey. I got something. Yeah, you you really want to see this. Come, just check this message. 
Um, so we're constantly just being so distracted by things. And I think that is the biggest joy killer, at least for me. And just making things is such a good counterbalance to that. So as much as my machines can seem like simple engineering slapstick, I realized that I've stumbled on something bigger than that. It's this expression of joy and humility that often gets lost in engineering. And for me, it was a way to learn about hardware without having my performance anxiety get in the way. And I often get asked if I think I'm ever going to build something useful. But the way I see it, I already have, because I've built myself this job. And it's something that I could never have planned for. Instead, it happened just because I was enthusiastic about what I was doing, and I was sharing that enthusiasm with other people. To me, there's the true beauty of making useless things, because it's this acknowledgement that you don't always know what the best answer is. It turns off that voice in your head that tells you that you know exactly how the world works. And maybe a toothbrush helmet isn't the answer, but at least you're asking the question. Thank you. That's Simone Yach. You can find all of her videos on YouTube, and you can watch her entire talk at TED.com. So here's a question. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Okay, raindrops on roses, whiskers on kittens. Yes. Bright Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Yes. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. (laughs) These are joyful, right? Yeah, it's true. You know, we all sort of understand the universality of those sort of simple joys. And we don't really think much as to why. But I think understanding why um, helps you start to look for more of those things. This is Ingrid Fatelli. Should I say I'm a designer? Like, what would you? Sure. You're a designer. That's good. And I'm the author of Joyful and the founder of The Aesthetics of Joy. And Ingrid has kind of dedicated her life to understanding what makes some things joyful, which is a concept that came up by accident while she was in design school. It was only in a moment when I had a review and one of the professors said, your work gives me a feeling of joy. That was the first time that I really gave much thought to joy. And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I really was so intrigued by the idea that there might be joy hiding in the things around us. When we come back in just a moment how Ingrid Fattel Lee's search for universally joyful things gave her the power to see little moments of joy everywhere. On the show today, Where Joy Hides, I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Microsoft. Microsoft wants you to know that the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, is now faster and more powerful than ever before. So you can get even more done, whether it's from your office or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop. With up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor, you can work how you want to for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Thanks also to Capital One. With the new Capital One Saver Card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out that new restaurant everyone's talking about and 4% on watching your team win at home. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. Do you love trivia, puzzles, nerdy games, and humor? What about interviews with actors, musicians, and people from all walks of life? Yeah? Then join me, Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about finding joy. 
And we're just hearing from designer Ingrid Vitelli, who first stumbled upon the concept of joy in design school. Ingrid picks up the story from the TED stage. Where does joy come from? It's different than happiness, which measures how good we feel over time. Joy is about feeling good in the moment, right now. And this was interesting to me because as a culture, we are obsessed with the pursuit of happiness. And yet in the process, we kind of overlook joy. I started asking everyone I knew and even people I just met on the street about the things that brought them joy. I felt like a detective. When did you last see it? Who were you with? What color was it? Did anyone else see it? I was the Nancy Drew of joy. <laughs> and after a few months of this, I noticed that there were certain things that started to come up again and again and again. They were things like cherry blossoms and bubbles, swimming pools and tree houses, hot air balloons and googly eyes and ice cream cones, especially the ones with the sprinkles. These things seem to cut across lines of age and gender and ethnicity. I mean, if you think about it, we all stop and turn our heads to the sky when the multicolored arc of a rainbow streaks across it. And fireworks, we don't even need to know what they're for, and we feel like we're celebrating too. These things aren't joyful for just a few people. They're joyful for nearly everyone. They're universally joyful. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's amazing to me, and I love that there's something about the human brain that just, like, lights up when it sees us. things. It doesn't matter where we're from or where we live. Like, it just, we're, we're just sort of wired to light up when we when we encounter these things. Yes, and that ran counter to everything that I had ever been taught. That, you know, the pleasure of a rainbow was just an idle pleasure. And so it was sort of incidental to our happiness and, and everything else. But if there were these things that created universal joy that are in all of us, and we all have this attraction to those things, then there must be some reason. What is it about these things that makes them so joyful. I had pictures of them up on my studio wall, and every day I would come in and try to make sense of it. And then one day, something just clicked. I saw all these patterns, round things, pops of bright color, symmetrical shapes, a sense of abundance and multiplicity, a feeling of lightness or elevation. When I saw it this way, I realized that though the feeling of joy is mysterious and elusive, we can access it through tangible physical attributes, or what designers call aesthetics, a word that comes from the same root as the Greek word aisthanomai, which means I feel, I sense, I perceive. And since these patterns were telling me that joy begins with the senses, I began calling them aesthetics of joy, the sensations of joy. And in the wake of this discovery, I noticed something, that as I walked around, I began spotting little moments of joy everywhere I went. A vintage yellow car or a clever piece of street art. It was like I had a pair of rose-colored glasses. And now that I knew what to look for, I was seeing it everywhere. It was like these little moments of joy were hidden in plain sight. Yeah, I mean, what is it about bright colors and patterns and abundance and, like, round things, right, that, that make them universally joyful? I mean, I guess there's no way we definitively could have the answer. Well, you're right. We can't know exactly. But if you think about the fact that joy is part of our motivational system, then it starts to make sense that many of these things are joyful because they tap into that innate emotional reward system, that rewards us for pursuing the things that are good for our survival and thriving. So, for example, round things. You know, one of the reasons that round things are so joyful is because round things are the safest shapes. I mean, bubbles, balloons, and balls, and hula hoops, and carousels. And in childhood, we're reaching out to touch things, and those shapes are the safest shapes. And 
when neuroscientists actually look at how our brains respond to curved shapes versus angular shapes, they find that angular shapes create activity in a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is associated partially with fear and anxiety. And round shapes don't do that. And so, you know, there's something unconscious in us that avoids those sharp shapes and pulls us toward these joyful, round, curving shapes. Like I, like I think about confetti, right? We, everybody loves confetti. Totally. And if you have just one confetto, which is the singular of confetti, mm-hmm. um, it's not very joyful. But when you multiply those, you get something that creates a lot of joy and you know, we evolved in a world where scarcity was dangerous to us and abundance was one of the things that we could look for to increase our chances of survival. So uh, when we see things that are lush, that are multi-textured, that have this sense of multicolor, multiplicity, that gives us a feeling of joy. You know, so much of of everybody's day-to-day life is defined by the design around them, right? Like they don't even know, they're not even conscious of the chairs they're sitting in or, or the color of the walls or the institutions in which they work, the hospitals, the schools. And so many of these places lack joy. They're they're joyless. Yeah, I think so. I I think when I look at the world, I feel like we've designed joy out of it in a lot of ways. And some of that is because we sort of embrace the idea of practicality, that things should be practical and therefore they should look practical. But there are ways to bring that feeling of joy back into our spaces. And you you make the point that people don't realize that these things are affecting them. Yeah. Do you know the thing that's brought me the most joy out of anything I've bought in, like, years, is um, this orange cargo bicycle that I have. And I, um, I I use it for everything, and it's awesome. It's making me smile just hearing about it. It's so. bright, a bright orange, and it's just, you can't miss it because it's bright, bright orange. Yeah, and I think, you know, in these landscapes that are so gray, I mean, you're literally carrying joy with you through the cityscape. Um, and... You know, I think a lot about the German artist um, Johannes Itten, who said, you know, color is life because a world without it appears to us as dead. And I think, you know, so many of our cityscapes are sort of leached of color and it makes them feel dead. It makes them feel like dead spaces. And when you take something like an orange bike and you travel through it, you're literally enlivening the space as you go. If these are the things that bring us joy, then why does so much of the world look like this? Why do we go to work here? Why do we send our kids to schools that look like this? And this is most acute for the places that house the people that are most vulnerable among us. Nursing homes, hospitals, homeless shelters, housing projects. We all start out joyful, but as we get older, Being colorful or exuberant opens us up to judgment. And so we hold ourselves back from joy. But if the aesthetics of joy can be used to help us find more joy in the world around us, then couldn't they also be used to create more joy? I spent the last two years scouring the planet, looking for different ways that people have answered this question. And this led me to the work of the artist Arakawa and the poet Madeleine Ginz, who believed that these kinds of environments are literally killing us. So, okay, so you you went on this search to to see how other people have kind of injected joy into some of these lifeless places, and that actually it, it changes behavior. Like, this, this is actually measurable. Yeah, it is. Uh, So, for example, in my talk, I showed a nursing home by the architect Emmanuel Moreau in Tokyo. And in the area where residents visit with their families, uh, Moreau had hung spheres in many, many different colors. And they're just these colorful balls that almost look like confetti floating in the air. And families stay a lot longer than they used to. Um, now that this room has been redesigned um, where they where they visit. And then um, the work that Public Color is doing in 
New York City, working with underserved public schools, painting them in vibrant colors. And what they hear from principals is that attendance improves, graffiti basically disappears, and that kids actually say they feel safer in the painted buildings. So again, these effects seem like they're on the surface, but they go much deeper. So if we can put things in our environment that change the way that we behave and the way that we feel, then why not put things in that make us feel good and that bring out our best selves. Each moment of joy is small, but over time they add up to more than the sum of their parts. And so maybe instead of chasing after happiness, what we should be doing is embracing joy and finding ways to put ourselves in the path of it more often. Deep within us, we all have this impulse to seek out joy in our surroundings. And we have it for a reason. Joy isn't some superfluous extra. It's directly connected to our fundamental instinct for survival. On the most basic level, the drive toward joy is the drive toward life. Thank you. That's Ingrid Fatale-Lee. She's the author of Joyful and the founder of the blog, The Aesthetics of Joy. You can check out her entire talk at TED.com. What is something that has brought you immense joy, just like in, in recent days or weeks? Um, I had a hummingbird come visit my garden. Wow. It was amazing. And I didn't realize that I had by accident planted one of the flowers that hummingbirds love the most. And this hummingbird came by, and he came by every day for like a week. So that's a very magical moment um, to see the hummingbird sort of just hovering in midair. You are like human Prozac. (laughs) That's the best thing anyone's ever said to me. (laughs) Thank you for that. On the show today, ideas about finding joy. And sometimes it's hiding in plain sight in everyday things. But sometimes it radiates from something so rare and so extraordinary that you kind of deliberately have to seek it out. So uh, what is uh, what is an umbrophile? <laughs> an umbrophile, well, it, uh, literally a lover of the shadow, but it's specifically uh, someone who loves being in the shadow of the moon. An eclipse chaser. It's a fancy word for an eclipse chaser. And you are an umbrophile. You you find your joy chasing eclipses. A- absolutely. I'm hooked. This is David Barron. He's a science writer. Skies will appear a little darker across North America. It, it actually started when I was working for NPR. The first thing that should be said about today's eclipse is it will never be safe to view directly with the naked eye. A partial solar eclipse was set to cross the country, and I interviewed an astronomer to find out what was going to happen, where you would want to go, how to view it safely. This is an eerie effect that you don't necessarily notice exactly what's happening, but you do know there's something wrong. There's and something it was this astronomer, his name is Jay Pasikoff, who, in the course of the interview, explained to me that as interesting as this partial solar eclipse was going to be, it was nothing, absolutely nothing, compared with the, the grandeur of a total solar eclipse. For National Public Radio, I'm David Barron. At the end of the interview, he said, you know, before you die, you owe it to yourself to experience a total solar eclipse. And, and he said it with, with such sincerity and such passion that he got my attention. And I, I looked into it, and I decided I would actually go see one. David Barron picks up his story from the TED stage. Now, a total eclipse is visible only along a narrow path, about 100 miles wide, and that's where the moon's shadow falls. It's called the Path of Totality. And in February 1998, the Path of Totality was going to cross Aruba. So I talked to my husband, and we thought, well, February, Aruba? Sounded like a good idea anyway. <clears throat> so, so we headed south to enjoy the sun and to see what would happen when the sun briefly went away. Well, the day of the eclipse found us and many other people out behind the Hyatt Regency on the beach, waiting for the show to begin. And we wore 
uh, eclipse glasses with cardboard frames and really dark lenses that enabled us to look at the sun safely. And a total eclipse begins as a partial eclipse. So first it looked like the sun had a little notch in its edge. And then that notch grew larger, turning the sun into a crescent. And it was all very interesting, but I wouldn't say it was spectacular. I mean, the day remained bright. If I hadn't known what was going on overhead, I wouldn't have noticed anything unusual. Well, about 10 minutes before the total solar eclipse was set to begin, weird things started to happen. A cool wind kicked up. Daylight looked odd, and shadows became very strange. They, they looked bizarrely sharp, as if someone had turned up the contrast knob on TV. And then I looked offshore, and I noticed running lights on boats. So clearly it was getting dark, although I hadn't realized it. Well, soon it was obvious it was getting dark. It felt like my eyesight was failing. And then all of a sudden, the lights went out. Well, at that, a cheer erupted from the beach, and I took off my eclipse glasses because at this point, during the total eclipse, it was safe to look at the sun with the naked eye. And I glanced upward, and I was just dumbstruck. To see it in person, it is just the most glorious sight in nature. It, it, first of all, it's just the way it shimmers. It's this sort of unreal light. It's not just a simple ring around the sun. It's, it's highly textured. It's, it looks like it's made out of strands of silk or cotton that just shimmer out in space. And I remember standing on that beach in Aruba, looking out into space at the sun and the planets together. And you just realize in your gut, oh my goodness, I'm just floating in space. I'm looking 93 million miles away uh, to, at the sun. And I understand the enormity of space and, and the fact that I am, I am nothing and powerless in the face of it. For the first time in my life, I just felt viscerally connected to the universe in all of its immensity. Time stopped, or it, or it just kind of felt non-existent. And, and what I beheld with my eyes, I didn't just see it. It felt like a vision. <laughs> and I stood there in this nirvana for all of 174 seconds, less than three minutes when all of a sudden, it was over. The sun burst out, the blue sky returned, the stars and the planets and the corona were gone. The world returned to normal. But I had changed. When we come back, how David went on a mission to see as many solar eclipses as possible. On the show today, ideas about finding joy in the everyday and the extraordinary. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to MailChimp. It might sound like MailChimp just does email marketing, but they actually do a lot more to help your business grow. Because growth looks different to everyone, MailChimp helps guide you to the right marketing decisions for your business. From audience management to ad campaigns and automation, MailChimp, they do more than mail. Thanks also to SimpliSafe, SimpliSafe Home Security. SimpliSafe is complete wireless protection for your home that can be self-installed in under an hour. There are no long-term contracts and no hidden fees. CNET, The Wirecutter, and PCMag have all named SimpliSafe their top pick for home security. And SimpliSafe protects over 2 million people every day. Learn more about SimpliSafe and get 25% off any of their home security systems at simplysafe.com slash radio hour. How often do people lie on dating apps? 
and are robots taking over our jobs? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of Planet Money's The Indicator, where every day we tell you a short story about the economy. Get it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about seeking joy. And we were just hearing from science writer David Barron in his first encounter with a total solar eclipse on a beach in Aruba. We always hear about, you know, these about eclipses, total eclipses, a once in a lifetime opportunity. So at that point, you're thinking, well, I'd have to wait a long time to see the next one, right? Well, right. If if you are waiting for one to come to you, it is probably a not even once in a lifetime ex- experience because uh, any given point on Earth will see a total solar eclipse only once every 400 years or so. Yeah. On the other hand, if you decide to travel, you could see many in your lifetime. You could see several dozen. This is how I spend my time and hard-earned money. Every couple of years, I head off to wherever the moon's shadow will fall to experience another couple minutes of cosmic bliss and to share the experience with others, with friends in Australia, with an entire city in Germany. And over time, I've become something else, an eclipse evangelist. And so let me tell you, before you die, you owe it to yourself to experience a total solar eclipse. It is the ultimate experience of awe. Now that word, awesome, has grown so overused that it's lost its original meaning. True awe, a sense of wonder and insignificance in the face of something enormous and grand is rare in our lives. But when you experience it, It's powerful. Awe dissolves the ego. Indeed, it promotes empathy and generosity. There is nothing truly more awesome than a total solar eclipse. It sounds like this is probably comes closest to the sort of the height of joy that that you can or have experienced, I guess. Is that is that right? Yeah, but you know, it's. I think joy is too simplistic a word. <clears throat> Depth of feeling, it brings up so many feelings. Uh, yeah, probably the most joyful and just the most deeply moved. I, I don't have kids. <laughs> I imagine watching one's child be born. Uh, that's got to be up there, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't had that experience. Um, I I have been with my mother, my grandfather, my mother-in-law, when they died. That was not, none of those were joyful experiences, but those were deeply, deeply moving and important experiences. And Mm. it's kind of up there with that, um, that, you know, we all go through our lives busy with day-to-day affairs, and that's what we need to do, right? And I don't think you could live every day thinking deep thoughts all the time, but I, for me, anyway, it's really important to take time out just to appreciate being alive and to appreciate the marvel that I'm here in this amazing universe. Do you, do you in, in a sense, kind of measure time now as the time between one eclipse to the next? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice to have this, this kind of different ordering to my life. And also looking backwards, it's sort of, these are milestones in my life that I can look at. I remember, I mean, I remember these eclipses so vividly, where I was and what the, what the solar corona looked like. And, and it makes me think about myself, of oh, those different periods of my life, who I was with. Um, you know, they're sort of like timestamps that are marked in my brain. What if we made these holidays? What if we... <laughs> What if, what if we all stood together, as many people as possible, in the shadow of the moon? Just maybe this shared experience of awe 
would help heal our divisions, get us to treat each other just a bit more humanely. Now, admittedly, some folks consider my evangelizing a little out there, my obsession eccentric. But when I think of my own mortality, and I do a lot, <laughs> when I think of everyone I have lost, my mother in particular, what soothes me is that moment of awe I had in Aruba. I picture myself on that beach, looking at that sky, and I remember how I felt. My existence may be temporary, but that's okay, because my gosh, look at what I'm a part of. Cherish those moments of deep connection with other people, with the natural world, and make them a priority. Yes, I chase eclipses. You might chase something else. But it's not about the 174 seconds. It's about how they change the years that come after. Thank you. That's David Barron. He's a science writer. And his latest book is called American Eclipse. You can see his full talk at TED.com. When I say the word joy, uh, does it bring any like words or thoughts to, to your mind? Well, I guess for me, I have this funny little fact that the work that I do as a musician, as a songwriter, is kind of to mine joy. This is Maclit Hadero. But it's also that we use music to talk about the things that are hard to talk about. So it's very hard to talk about joy because we find ourselves kind of limited by language. So instead, it's easier to make a joyful sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's easier to sing a joyful melody. So, you know, joy for me is not so much about words or it's not that I can think of, you know, there's all, there, I can go to a thesaurus, but I'd rather hum. <laughs> Maclete also finds inspiration for her music in the small things, like in the sounds that make up everyday life, the sounds of nature, of laughter, and even of language. It's like a practice. It's like a practice to stop and listen. It's something that we have to remind ourselves to do, mm. but it's something that's available to everybody to remind yourself that you're connected to the world around you and that the world around you can be speaking to you. Maclit Hadero picks up her idea from the TED stage. Every language communicates with pitch to varying degrees, whether it's Mandarin Chinese, where a shift in melodic inflection gives the same phonetic syllable an entirely different meaning, to a language like English, where a raised pitch at the end of a sentence implies a question. As an Ethiopian-American woman, I grew up around the language of Amharic, Amarinya. It was my first language, the language of my parents, one of the main languages of Ethiopia. And there are a million reasons to fall in love with this language. It's depth of poetics, it's double entendre, it's wax and gold, it's humor, it's proverbs that illuminate the wisdom and follies of life. But there is also this melodicism, a musicality built right in. And I find this distilled most clearly in what I like to call emphatic language. Language that's meant to highlight or underline or that springs from surprise. Take, for example, the word inde. Now, if there are any Ethiopians in the audience, they're probably chuckling to themselves because it, the word means something like no or how could he or no, he didn't. It kind of depends on the situation. But when I was a kid, this was my very favorite word. And I think it's because it has a pitch. It has a melody. You can almost see the shape as it springs from someone's mouth. It dips and then raises again. And as a musician and composer, when I hear that word, something like this is floating through my mind. Or take, for example, the phrase for it is right or it is correct. Lekkeno. Lekkeno. It's an affirmation, an agreement. Lekkeno. When I hear that phrase, something like this starts rolling 
through my mind. Can you give me an example of what a joyful, of what like the sound of joy is? I mean, we're, we're trying to express it in words, but like, can you give me a sound of joy? Mm, let me sink in for a second. Mm. Sure. Well, there's so many different kinds of joy, right? There's like an anatomy of joy, you could say. Like, imagine that you were um, like face to face with a baby. And the yeah. baby was just smiling up at you. And maybe <laughs> your expression of joy in that sense was more like a hum. Maybe it's like that, you know, maybe it's like a Maybe it's like a just you and this one creature fixated on your eyes, staring mm. into your soul. And the sound <laughs> of your joy is that hum that's just sitting between you. And that's one kind of joy. Maybe another kind of joy is like that. You know, I mean, this is the obvious one, the deep belly laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, maybe that's one of them. Do you remember, by the way, there's a there's like there's a a YouTube video of like a laughing yogi. Have you seen this before? Laughing exercise for the heart and mind. Wait, I think there's a bunch of them. There are a bunch of them. Yeah, and and they're amazing. You can't if you watch it within like five seconds, you will be laughing. It is somebody laughing. It's la- and laughter is contagious. It may oh, yeah. <laughs> it just it's one of those things. It's like one of those moments of joy that you, you get to experience when somebody is laughing. You can't help but join in. You can't help it. You can't help it. it joy is an invitation. And on stage, I really try to tap into joy and just the sheer joy of singing, just the sheer joy, which has always been my deepest joy since I was a little kid. But part of my job, I feel, on stage is to get so free inside of joy on a stage that I invite everybody in the audience to go there with me. Just like that joy in a laugh is contagious, so is somebody in their joy on a stage or doing what they love, whatever their passion is. And I feel like that's a deep part of my job, of my work, is to dig in so deep into joy that I invite other people in. You, um, in your, in this TED Talk, you describe, um, you were, uh, you were, cooking lentils and you're taking the lid off the pot and putting it back on the counter and it started to roll back and forth making this sound and then you have the sound of clanking and then you integrated that sound into one of your songs and uh and is your is your life like a musical like you just break out in song you know, like, like yes. clang, clang, like clang, clang, and then like, and then it just, and then all these people appear, suddenly appear in your kitchen, and you've got a musical in your kitchen. <laughs> well, I make songs out of everything, so you know, and and then they run like loops in my head, and then I'm like, okay, let me go record this and see what happens. <laughs> but it can be something like. Um, if I say to myself, okay, I'm in bed a little too long and it's time to wake up in the morning, and the way I'll wake up will just be like, it's time to wake up, 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 and then that will become a song. And it's any kind of phrase will just become a song. So my life really is like a musical, and um, that's... <laughs> You know, I don't know if I drive the people around me crazy with all of that stuff because um, it's pretty constant. Maclita, I wonder, do you think that this ability to just find these sounds and to immerse yourself in these moments, 
Do you think that kind of protects you from, you know, all the chaos and, and the noise, maybe the dark things around you? Like, like I've noticed when you're performing, when I've seen you perform, you're often smiling, right? Like when you're singing, you're smiling and your eyes are closed and it's like, um, like you're in a different place almost. Yeah, it is a different place. I think that, you know, enjoy having joy and sinking into joy in the beauty of small moments does not mean that the world around us is perfect. To be inside of your joy, it doesn't mean that you are ignoring the challenges and the darkness and the injustice of the world around Mm. you. This is a thing, you know, sometimes we have to give ourselves permission, even inside of that, to be able to feel joy in the small things, in the connections between people, in the sound of a laugh, in the sound of like a baby laughing, in the sound of a hum, in the sound of you singing a song that makes you feel strong. Like, this is what we have. This is something that gives you the strength to be out in this crazy world. I mean, it's almost like the simplest recipe for joy that there is, is to stop and recognize what's already around us. Singer-songwriter Maklit Hadero. Her latest album is called When the People Move, the Music Moves Too. You can see her full talk at TED.com. I love to laugh <laughs> loud and long and clear. I love to laugh. <laughs> it's getting worse every year. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for listening to our show on Finding Joy this week. If you want to find out more about who's on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, and James Delahousie, with help from Daniel Shukin and Megan Shellong. Our intern is Dareth Gales. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. <laughs>